0: The text is written out in its entirety in your bulletin. If you want to use your bulletin, please feel free to do that. It is a long passage, so I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm actually going to ask you to be seated for it because it is quite long. But I am going to ask you, if you would, please give your attention to God's Word. Joshua chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 8. I read the first seven verses earlier in the service. We'll begin reading in verse 8 of Joshua chapter 4. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing, over The ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. And on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. And they camped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God has dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And as soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." And at that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. And though all the people who came out had been circumcised yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord the Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their place in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today, I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and the manna ceased, the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And it was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we pray that you'll help us to understand the story and light of redemptive history. Open our hearts now as we think about it together. In Jesus' name, amen. As families, and even more as church families, we are called to remember the mighty acts of God. We are called to remember what it is that God has done in your life and in your family's life. And this text shows us what we are to remember, how we are to remember it, and where we are to remember it. What we are to remember, how we are to remember it, and where we are to remember it. So, Let's remember the story together. What exactly are we to remember? Here in Joshua, the people of Israel are about to enter over the western side of the Jordan, over the Jordan to the land of Canaan that was promised to them many years before. And to do that, they must cross over the Jordan toward the city of Jericho, this big city of Jericho with high walls that was inhabited by the bad and mean Canaanites. And the Canaanites were people who had the protection of their city with its high walls, but they also had what? They had the protection of the river. And this wasn't just some flowing stream like Bird Creek. This was a river, it says in Joshua 3, that was at flood stage, which means that it was as high as it could possibly have been in the Jordan Valley after all of the snow melt from the mountains of Lebanon poured into this Jordan Valley and filled up the river. And the Canaanites were interesting people because they believed in a God called Baal. And Baal was the God of wind and water and storms and rivers. And so we hear the people of Jericho are peering over their high walls and they're thinking, ha ha, we are safe, not just by our high walls, but we are what? We are safe by the river which is as high as it could possibly be. And so the river for the Canaanites was a symbol of Baal's protection. It was a symbol of Baal's protection and the Canaanites knew it and Israel also knew it. The river was a good thing for the Canaanites, but what was it for Israel? It was a problem (laughs) because how could they get over to the promised land when the river was at flood stage? And we spoke last week of how it is in our helplessness. It is in our helplessness that God shows the strength of his might. And so Joshua commanded the priests, he said, you take the ark of the Lord, the ark, which is a box no bigger than a cedar chest that you might have in your home. And inside this ark is a jar of manna, the staff that budded of Aaron, and the tablets that Moses brought down out of Mount Sinai. The ark was for us a picture of God's presence. And Joshua said, you tell the Levites to take that ark and to walk into the river. Any of you ever gone cliff diving at Grand Lake or at Lake Skytook? You know, like when, when a river is overflowing its banks, it's not like you have like a little white sandy beach to just walk in. There was no dipping your toe into the river. Joshua was saying to the Levites, You take that Ark of the Covenant and you stand on the edge of those rocks where you will fall three to 12 feet down as soon as you put your toe in the river and you walk into it. There is no just dip your toe into the Jordan River. And so these priests, by faith, take the Ark a thousand yards ahead of the people of Israel. And so all of Israel is watching the ark as these priests take steps into the Jordan River off these giant boulders of these rocks. And what happens? The river stops, it piles up in a heap. And the Levites go into the river on dry ground. And we said last week that the ark was for us a picture of whom? It's a picture of Jesus, the ark of God, going before his people to help us cross over the river of sin and death on dry ground. Can you imagine the scene? Like, Can you imagine if you were a Canaanite who worshiped Baal, the God of the rivers, and you're looking up over your high walls and you see a million men, for that is how they counted back then, not to mention women and children, but a million men following this wooden box across the Jordan River at the heights of the floodplain. And the water stops. And they walk across on dry ground. And Joshua twice in this passage says, when your children ask of you, what happened at the Jordan River? When they say, what do these stones mean? Then you will tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. And again in verse 21 of chapter four, down through verse 22, it says, and when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? You shall tell them, dads that Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan for you. Most of us are in our childbearing years, most of us in our church. And many of us are empty nesters. And the Lord has commanded us it's not a suggestion. He's commanded us that when our children ask about spiritual things, you are to tell them what God has done in your life. But I think we can all admit that it is actually quite hard, isn't it? For many of us to tell children about what God has done in our life. It is hard. I mean, listen, I know when I call many of you to have like a pastoral visit, I usually call the dads first And like me, when I ask the fathers, hey, I'd love to come over one night and just see how your family's doing, pray for you guys, catch up. And if you're like me, then you say what? You say, uh, that would be awesome, but I have no idea what my schedule is. You better call the boss, right? Call my wife. And so I call the wife. And then when I talk to you ladies, you tell me, well, Monday is out. Tuesday, we have practice. Wednesday is youth group. Thursday might work if you can come at 10 p.m., but I'm not gonna come at 10 p.m. because she needs to get to sleep. Friday, we're at grandma's to eat. Saturday, we have ball games. And I pretty much just say, okay, I'll see you Sunday. We all live incredibly frenetic, busy lives. And I want you to know that in some ways, that's okay. I'm not here to beat up on you because of how busy we are. But what God's word tells us is still true. You should tell your children what God has done in your life. And the Lord knows how busy his people are. And whether our schedules are too full or not is another sermon for another day. But in Deuteronomy chapter four, the Lord gives Israel some very specific commands with regards to how you're to talk about the gospel with your kids. These words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse six. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your home and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign over your doorpost. In other words, there is no time in your life, mom and dad, when you should not be telling your children about the mighty acts of God in your life. Please, dads, do not wait for the right moment at dinner when you can open the Bible and read John 1 to your children. It might not ever come. It might, that'd be awesome. But do you talk to your children about the mighty acts of God in your life on the way? Some of my most meaningful conversations that I've ever had with my parents, I had in the car, what does this mean, dad? And even with the distractions of driving, we were able to have a conversation, some of which I'll never forget. What are you to remember, O Israel? You are to remember the mighty acts of God in your life. Do you remember them? The Bible says that for Christians, the essence of sin is forgetfulness. Eve forgot what God had told her in the garden. And so what did she do? She gave ear, she listened, she paid attention to another voice. And so also for me, and so also for you, we tend to forget God's mighty acts in our lives. When your children ask you, you tell them about how he saved you. And I don't mean be exhibitionistic in an inappropriate way, but I mean, be honest with them. Tell them that mom or dad could not fix their sin problem. And Jesus showed up, and it was amazing. Talk to them on the way. Tell your grandchildren. Teenagers, remind your parents of what God's doing in your life. Tell your parents what he has done. Because sometimes, teenagers, please listen. It is gonna be your influence on your parents' life who will help them understand how to do this too. Sometimes the children can become fathers to the fathers. So here in this generation, here on the west bank of the Jordan River, God says you tell your children what happened here. When you go to the Vietnam War Memorial, um, and I hope you do go. You know, it is, um, it is here in Owasso, just at Tulsa Tech. It's a miniature version of the Vietnam War Memorial. It's an amazing exhibit. You go and you remember what the Lord did. The text says, not only are you to remember the mighty acts of God, but it tells you how you are to remember it. God intends for each generation verses eight to 20 of chapter four of Joshua. He intends for every generation to have a way of remembering God's mighty acts in their lives. And in this context, Moses said for them to go and to find something that reminds them of what he has done. When, I, when Lauren and I and our kids lived in Princeton, New Jersey, one of my favorite places to go in Princeton, it may not surprise you as a pastor, even though it feels and sounds weird, was to the graveyard. I like graveyards. And in Princeton, there are actually two graveyards. There's a Protestant graveyard and there's a Catholic graveyard. And one of those graveyards is actually not a graveyard. It's actually a churchyard. Because when you go to church, you have to walk through death. We rarely have churchyards anymore. But one of the things I loved about the Princeton graveyard is the picture of walking through death in order to go to the church and then walking out of a life-giving proclamation of the gospel through death and reading these ornate and large sarcophagi or these large tombs. And in Texas where I grew up, the tombs are quite simple. They have the names and the dates of birth and the dates of death. But Years ago, they would actually have large capstones and they would tell entire stories of the person's life. So in the Princeton cemetery, you have the life of Jonathan Edwards there and written out on top of his grave and his wife, Sarah. And you have B.B. Warfield and Archibald Alexander and Aaron Burr, all these famous people. And you would read and you would say, this man was born on such and such a date to this man who was a cobbler and who who he later, you know, had a conversion experience and married this woman and they had these many children and he became a great lawyer during this trial or another stone may say he was a great scholar who discovered such and such or he may have been a great doctor who was the physician for the entire town for 50 years. And you can read of these great works of their life and you remember in the graveyard, in the churchyard, And in Joshua chapter four, the Lord commands Joshua, Joshua, they need to remember what happens here. And so you command one man from every tribe, the 12 tribes of Israel, to go into the Jordan. Now notice the Canaanites are watching this happen, aren't they? And they get across to the West Bank. And then Joshua says, now I need 12 of you, one from each tribe. And you're gonna go back into the Jordan River. And you are to pull up while... presumably the priests are still in the middle of it with the ark, you are to pull up a Jordan stone, which the stones are stones of the river. So they're smooth and they're rounded. They've been weathered by the water over the years as they've broken off all the hard edges. And the Canaanites will know that those stones are not just rocks off the bank. They're smooth and round and they are huge stones that could not have been gathered up from the midst of the Jordan River, right in the middle of the river, except if the water had dried up. And these stones become for Israel, a proclamation of God's might and power, and they become a taunt to the gods of the world. They are a taunt to the Canaanites to say, aha, this wasn't just a river crossing about getting us into the promised land. On a deeper level, this was a a crossing about the battle of the gods. The true God, Yahweh, the one true God, and the false God, Baal. And these river rocks, these smooth stones out of the midst of the river will be forever a reminder to you and to us of the strength and the might of the one true God. Setting up stones was not new for Israel. Whenever Israel came across the Red Sea when they escaped Egypt, Moses wrote a song, Exodus 15. It's the first time you hear a song in all of Scripture. He wrote a song and he plays it with instruments that they had presumably taken with them from Egypt. But within a generation, they forgot the words and the music stopped. And in Exodus 24, verse 4, it says that then Moses, after he came down from the mountain, Mount Sinai, then it says, the Lord said, I want you to take and I want you to make what's called in Hebrew a massive bot. I want you to take a massive bot, which is to take stones and I want you to build them up to remind the people of what I did here at Sinai. And he did that. 12 pillars, it says in Exodus chapter 12. 12 massive set up to remind Israel of his faithfulness to them. And now coming over the Jordan River, again, the second exodus, Joshua says, I want you to take and I want you to set up a massive I want you to stack these stones up. How do you talk about the mighty acts of God and your family together. Do you have ways of doing that? The elders and the deacons are gonna help me just for a moment, pass out little massive offs to you. Small river stones that you are to take if you would like. And you can either do this as a project at home or you could just simply leave this on your bathroom counter if you'd like to remember the mighty acts of God in your life. And if you want to, moms and dads, you can actually take these and make a project out of them with hot glue or with Gorilla Glue or some epoxy and stack them up, put them in the kitchen and just let it be a reminder to you when you come to grab your breakfast or your coffee one morning and to say, the Lord has done a mighty work in our family. He has rescued us from sin and death. And you can take your children in your arms, dads, moms, and you can say to them, this is how the Lord has worked in my life. And I pray for the day when he works the same way in yours. You are to remember the mighty acts of God in your life. And you are to set up massive in your life to remind you, of what the Lord your God has done. Now, let me take it a little deeper, if I could. Before before I do that, um, let me just tell you that one has said that when it comes to thinking about the next generation, one generation believes something, the second generation assumes it, and the third generation forgets it. And we are in a very interesting time where it is no wonder why people are running from the church after they get out of their parents' homes because they see this very thin veneer of religiosity because their parents never told them about what God had done in their life. They told them what God had done. But it says here, you tell your children what this means to you. (laughs) You tell your children how you were broken by your sin. Get specific if you need to. Encourage them by the way that God has been faithful to you. And the older you get, the more transparent you can become as your children become able to handle the news of their parents not being perfect. One of the most amazing things in the early 21st century was that uh, the Pulitzer Prize was given to a Massavoth. It was given to a book written by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. And it was the story of a, Minister named John Ames. He was a congregational minister that lived in Gilead, Iowa, just as his father, who was a minister before him, and just as his grandfather was a minister before him. And he writes to a seven-year-old son, a Masavoth. Here is some of what he says. While thinking of it: when you are an old man like I am, you might think of writing some sort of account of yourself as I am doing. In my experience of it, the age has a tendency to make one's sense of oneself harder to maintain. Why do I love the thought of you old? That first twinge of arthritis in your knee is a thing I imagined with all the tenderness I felt when you showed me your loose tooth. Be diligent in your prayers, old man. I hope you'll have seen more of the world than I ever got around to seeing only myself to blame. And I hope you will have read some of my books and God bless you. God bless your eyes and your hearing also. And of course, your heart. And I wish I could help you carry the weight of many years, but the Lord will have that fatherly satisfaction." And the watching world read of this book, written by Marilyn Robinson, of this minister telling his son of the mighty acts of God for hundreds of pages. And they were amazed by it. They gave it the Pulitzer Prize in 2005. Francis Schaeffer, of my father's generation, wrote, "It was my generation and the generation that preceded me that forgot." The younger generation is not primarily to be blamed. Those who are struggling today, those who are far away in doing that, which is completely contrary to the Christian conscience are not first to be blamed. It is my generation and the generation that preceded me who turned away. Today, we are left not only with a religion and a church without meaning, but a culture without meaning. Words true in 2016, just as true as they were in 1969 when he wrote them. You are to remember the mighty acts of God. How Jesus, the ark of God, preceded you across that river, dried up that Jordan River of the treachery of your heart of sin and death, and allowed you to walk across safely on dry ground. How are you to do that? You are to set up massive offs you are to remind yourself so that you do not forget. So that when your children ask of you, what did these stones mean? You may tell them of the mighty work of God in your heart. Now, lastly, where are we to do this? Before I tell you where, it's curious to me that a little hint of biblical interpretation that whenever the New Testament talks about something in the Old Testament and uses the exact language of it. It becomes the interpretive key to how to understand it. And in the New Testament, when Peter is writing in his first epistle, and Peter writes in chapter two, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. Peter mixes his metaphors to say, not only are the rocks on the west bank of the Jordan River to be a reminder to you, but you know what else? You are a living stone. And through God's sanctifying work in your life, he hewns the rough edges off of you so that you become a living stone for your children. You become a living stone for your neighbors. You are a living stone. How are you doing, living stones? Have you forgotten who you are? It's curious that right after they cross the Jordan River, what's the first thing they do? The first thing that they do after they set up these Masavaths in the plural, Masavateem, these stones on the west bank of the Jordan. The first thing they do is they circumcise an entire generation of men. Gulp. <laughs> they make flint knives and they take men that are 40 years old. And I love the passage where it says, they hung around a little while until they healed up. <laughs> I'll say, They circumcised an entire generation. Children, please ask your parents after church, what does circumcision mean, daddy? And they circumcised the children and they circumcised the adults, all the men. The first thing that Israel did after they crossed the Jordan River is they marked them with the sign of the covenant. And as New Testament people of God, we too mark off our children with the sign of the covenant, but it is not circumcision for little girls are also included in that covenant sign. It is baptism. Why do we choose to baptize our children? Because of passages just like Joshua chapter four. Pictures of the mighty work of God in your family, of doing this amazing work to bring the gospel to bear in your life's parents, in your life. And then also marking your children as those who belong to the visible church, to a community where the gospel is preached to them, where they are reminded in a community where they do not forget the mighty acts of God. So those children will have the massive vaths, as it were, of their baptism to look back on and say, God did a mighty work. So that when the condition of the promises proclaimed to them in their baptism, that is their faith. When those children believe and those conditions are met, all those covenant promises are true for that child. What do they do right after they circumcise the people of Israel? Right after they circumcise them, what do they do? They practice the Passover. And it's curious that it says that they crossed the Jordan River on the 10th day of the first month, which is 40 years to the day when they crossed the Red Sea to the day. And in the second Exodus, the people of God come and they no longer eat the manna of the field, they eat the fruit of the land of Canaan. Where do you remember? You don't just remember every 40 years on the anniversary friends, you remember every Sunday. Sunday becomes for us the day you cross the Jordan River. We practice it every week. And when you come to the Lord's table, you are coming to practice the Passover where those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus come running to the table. Because when you come to this table, as you'll come in just a moment, you come saying, I do not forget. And you come broken by your forgetfulness and you remember again the mighty acts of God. When you go to Appomattox Courthouse as a family one day, and I hope that you do, I hope that I get to come. I've never been there with my family. There is a memorial at the Appomattox Courthouse, this famous place where General Robert A. Lee surrendered to Ulysses S. Grant. The Northern Army of Virginia surrendered to the Union Army. And at the Appomattox Courthouse, there's not just a memorial stone, a plaque, but there is a living memorial where every day a soldier dressed either as a Union soldier or a Confederate soldier on alternating days comes out of the courthouse to a group of people, much like is gathered here, and tells the story again, as though it just happened yesterday And he stays steadfastly in his role so that when we ask a question that obviously assumes that what he's talking about happened 150 years ago, he just looks at you curious. And he goes on telling the story. When you come to worship on Sunday, you are coming to see Jesus before his people retell you the story of how he gave his life for you and helped you cross that Jordan of sin and death for you. How he was the Ark of the Covenant that went before his people, where the waters dried up in a heap and you were able to walk across on dry ground. And you take your stone, your massive vath, and you remember. Fathers, you tell your children the mighty deeds of God. Mothers, you tell them on the way what he has done for you. We are to remember his finished work for you. And we are to do it wherever we go. And we are principally to do it together when we gather and worship with God's covenant people. Because worship is marked off as holy for his purposes. And when you come to the table, when you see adults or children being baptized here, you remember the sign of the covenant and you know that you're part of the people of God and you know that he is at work in your midst. When your children ask of you, you tell them the Lord dried this river and we walked across on dry ground. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us in whatever way we can to proclaim the good news to our children, to our friends, to our neighbors. Some of us, it may be by remembering the rock that sits on our countertop at our home, a rock that we received in a sermon on Joshua chapter four. Lord, for some of us, it may be writing a letter to someone that we love to tell them the mighty work of God in our lives. But Father, help us not to forget Help us to use our gifts to proclaim that good news. And so now, fathers, we turn toward giving to you of our finances. We pray that you would help us to reflect on the song that's about to be sung and that we will give generously as the plates are passed because of what you've done for us and that we would not forget. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.